This morning, I'm in the fifth week of a sermon series through 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter that was written by a leader in the early church named Paul to a church in Thessalonica that he had started around the year 49 A.D., And after he and some fellow missionaries had been driven out of Thessalonica by a mob of angry Jews uh, who found his message about Jesus being Lord to be blasphemous, he wanted to go back but kept being prevented from going back. And a couple years after, uh, he finally sends one of his co-workers, Timothy. And Timothy goes, visits with the Thessalonians, comes back, shares the news about how they're doing, and in response... Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians and, he, or Thessalonians, and he's so grateful for how they're doing. He uses the first couple chapters to remind them of the gospel and of his love for them and to defend himself against some of the accusations that his enemies have been uh, slandering him with. And then he pivots in chapter 4, where we're beginning today, to deal with some of the issues that are arising in the church. This is typically how his letters tend to go. He starts with kind of uh, reminding them of the gospel, reminding them of their relationship, and then he pivots to instruction on uh, the implications of the gospel for their everyday life. And so in this chapter, he's going to deal with three issues. He begins by talking about sex and sexuality. He goes on to talk about work, and then he's going to talk about death. And so the next three weeks are going to be talking about sex this morning, work next week, and death a couple weeks from now. I don't know what's funny about that, but that's, that's the way we're going to be going. Um, so let me read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. Here we go. These are Paul's words to the church of Thessalonica. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Let me pray before we continue. Father, I pray that you would speak clearly through me, that I would be able to speak in spirit, uh, in in love and truth. pray that you prepare the hearts of each person here to hear directly from you what it is they need to hear in regards to their specific circumstance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul is writing this to a church in the Roman Empire. And I don't know what you know about the Roman Empire and their sexual ethic, but let me tell you a little bit about it. In Paul's day, most men had a wife, and the wife's job was to manage the household, raise the children. And then the man would also typically have a uh, mistress to provide them with intellectual companionship and maybe a concubine as well. And then if they had sexual needs, they could also uh, use prostitutes and slaves or young boys as well for their sexual needs. And that was very common in those days. While, of course, the woman, her job was to stay home and manage the household and the kids. Okay? So in those days, that was common for men. And Paul has the audacity to write to churches in the Roman Empire and to tell them this vision of sexuality that, Men and women alike are to be sexually faithful in their marriages. That they are not to give into every sexual impulse they have, but they are to control their bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, and they are not to take advantage of others. 
And he warns them that God will punish people for their sins. He reminds them that God called them not to impurity, but to live holy lives. Needless to say, his message was not met with a 100% approval rate, nor do I expect that my message this morning will be met with a 100% approval rate. There are certainly many in our culture as well who feel God's vision for sexuality is out of step with the way things should be, that the things you read in the Bible are ancient, outdated, and have no relevance necessarily for life today that we know better than God does. And so, again, just as Paul delivered this message that was hard to hear and caused many to scoff at them, I would expect that some as well might reject the things that I have to say. Uh, But what Paul said, remember he said, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He did not see it as something he was making up, but something that had come to him from God, from the Lord Jesus. This is by the authority of Jesus. This is God's will for your life, for your sexuality. So before we dive into what we have to learn from this passage, let me make two preliminary statements. First of all, I recognize that talking about sexuality carries with it many strong feelings for many of you, right? It may bring up memories of past experiences, present longings or pain, real confusion or questions. I'm going to do my best this morning to lay out what I believe is God's vision for sexuality. And if you find points in which you disagree points that make you angry or confused, or points that are new to you that you hadn't thought about before, I want you to consider this sermon an invitation to a conversation. I would love to be able to sit down with each and every one of you right now and have a one-to-one discussion, because each of you are coming from very unique circumstances, right? But I can't. It's a one-way monologue right now. But again, I want you to consider this an invitation to a conversation. If I say things that you disagree with, if I say things that make you angry or confused You can email me. You can call me. I'm friendly. I'm happy to discuss with you. I'm happy to listen to your circumstance. I recognize that every individual story is unique. There are no single people or married people or gay people or divorced people, right? Each person is a unique person with a unique story and a unique background and experiences. So the bottom line is that you are welcome to seek me out afterwards if you want to have more of a conversation at some point about your personal experience in life. And we, I believe, can have a respectful conversation. Secondly, I would say that sexuality is a topic that is sometimes avoided in churches and Christian families, that churches and Christian parents sometimes are not, not sure how to talk about it uh, with people in the church or with kids. And often when it is brought up, the focus is mainly on do's and don'ts. It's on rules, right? It's on this is what you're supposed to do as a Christian, this is what you're not supposed to do as a Christian. And I think that emphasis puts the emphasis on the wrong place. My vision again this morning, my approach this morning, is going to be trying to lay out what I believe is God's vision for sexuality. It's going to be much more than a list of do's and don'ts, and I believe it's much more beautiful and attractive than just laying out rules. I would say that our culture is not shy about giving its vision for sexuality to you, to young people. And so I don't think we should be shy as well of laying out what we believe God has said about sexuality because I think it's better for you and it's better for this world. So what I'm going to do this morning is, using this as a springboard, this passage, I'm going to talk about the four aspects I see to God's vision for sexuality. Uh, And then I'm also going to talk about four implications of what that vision means for our lives 
people have written books and books and books about this topic, and I'm going to try to condense it as much as I can to a 35-minute sermon or so. Uh, two books in particular that really helped me in preparation, I'll just put up here. One was called Rethinking Sexuality by Dr. Julie Slattery. Another was called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. So there's many books you can read. These are two books in particular that I found particularly helpful. So let me take a drink of water. And let's dive in. Four aspects that I see of God's vision for sexuality. The first is this, that God created our sexuality to be a sign pointing to him. Right away, some of you are saying, I get that. And some of you are saying, huh, never thought about that. Let's, let's try to understand what Eric means by that. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. From the very beginning, we see part of God's vision here is that he created male and female and says the man will leave his family and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh. It's the first word on marriage and sexuality there. One man and one woman coming together in unity in a relationship where it says they can be vulnerable and without shame. And my contention and what I believe the Bible teaches is that God created sexuality to be something, a sign pointing to him. When you think about it, you read through the Bible, everything God created in some way is meant to point to him. It's meant to reveal something to us about the character of God, about who he is. Look at the sparrows, how God feeds and cares for them. Does he not care for you? Look at the shepherd and the sheep. The Lord is like a shepherd going after the one sheep who gets away. Look at the tree. And how we are to be like trees planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season. Look at the bread you eat. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry. The water you drink, Jesus, is the water of life, living water. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. Over and over, God gives us pictures as you look around this world that are meant to display something about his character. And God could have given us the ability to reproduce in any way. He could have said, you're going to high-five someone and a baby will happen, right? You know? Or it could be like gremlins, you know? You get wet and you reproduce, and that's how it happens. But God, in his infinite wisdom, decided to create sexuality in a way where a male and female would come together out of attraction for each other and would be able to reproduce sexually. So how is this meant to point us to God. I'm going to say this, that I believe God created sex to be an expression of intimacy, exclusivity, complementarity, and passionate love expressed in the context of a covenant relationship, a whole life commitment that's known as marriage. Let me say that again. God created sex to be an expression of intimacy, exclusivity, complementarity, and passionate love expressed in the context of a covenant 
relationship, a whole life commitment known as marriage. That word covenant, if it's new to you, it's kind of like a contract, but it's with intimacy, an intimate relationship, right? You make a contract with your phone company. As long as they provide services to you, you'll stay with them. But there's no intimacy there. There's no relationship there. A covenant is much more than just a contract. Yes, you're making an agreement with someone, but it's much more than that. There's an intimacy, a depth of relationship there. So Paul, again, we're talking about how our sexuality, our relationships point us to Jesus, point us to God. And Ephesians 5 brings this out very well. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, when you read a passage like this, many people get hung up on the whole submission thing. I'm not going to talk as much about that today. What I'm using this passage for is to show how he says marriage is meant to be a sign pointing to God's relationship with his people, Jesus' relationship with his church. How many times does he say that in this passage? That husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. This is a profound mystery, he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church, that this earthly marriage is meant to be a sign pointing people to God's love for his people. It's meant to be a sign pointing people to the relationship that we were meant to enjoy with God, that we were meant to enjoy, we're created to enjoy a covenant relationship with God that is marked by intimacy and exclusivity and complementarity and passionate love. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That when you think about romantic love and sex, that they were created by God, first and foremost as a sign meant to point us to the love that we were designed to enjoy with God forever. The covenant relationship he's created us for with him, where there's intimacy, exclusivity, complementarity, passionate love. You know, not only does the Bible begin with a marriage between Adam and Eve, but it ends with a marriage scene. It says this, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
So you look big picture at the Bible, and the Bible begins with a marriage between Adam and Eve, and then it ends with a marriage between Christ and his church, God and his people. Again, marriage is meant to be, and sex is meant to be, a sign pointing us to the love we were meant to enjoy with God forever. It's the best earthly language that the author of Revelation can give us to describe what it's going to be like when we enjoy that love with God forever, the intimacy, the, the love, the ecstasy, the passion that we will have when we are with God forever. And on that day, marriage will pass away and sex will pass away. They will no longer be needed because the real thing is there, so the sign is no longer needed. Don't need the shadow anymore when we have the substance. When we have God, marriage will fade away, sex will fade away, we'll have God himself. There's a scene in Matthew 22 where there's a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. They, they, don't, they don't believe in the afterlife. And they're debating with Jesus and they present him with this scenario where a man's, you know, a, a wife, her husband dies and then she remarries and, you know, husband after husband after husband after husband dies. And they ask the question, well, then when she gets to heaven, like, is she going to have eight husbands? And Jesus replies with this. He says in Matthew 22, if I can get this to work, there we go. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. The resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. He says, you don't get it. You don't understand God. You don't understand the power of God. On that day, there will be no marriage. There will be no sex. You will have God. You won't need the sign anymore. This might be new to you, but this means that long-awaited reunion that's always talked about, you know, where you're going to see your spouse again. You're going to see your spouse again, but it's going to be very different than maybe what you assume, right? It's, it's, you're going to see each other, but the whole marriage thing fades away in the light of God, in the light of having the thing that marriage was meant to point to. And if you've been married more than once, thank God, you're not going to be awkward for all eternity. We were created to enjoy a covenantal relationship with God that is marked by intimacy and exclusivity, passionate love, and yes, complementarity. And when I say that word, what I mean is that the complementarity of male and female is meant to point to the complementarity of God and his people. This is why the Bible consistently presents homosexuality as contrary to God's design and will. It's not out of hatred. It's not out of prejudice. It's because marriage was meant to be more than just a place for people to be happy together. It's meant to be a sign pointing people to the relationship that we were designed to enjoy forever, the relationship between us and our God. And the Bible's witness on this is consistent. And yes, there were homosexual relationships in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. This isn't a new thing that we've come up with. And if you want to discuss this further, you're welcome to reach out to me. But the first element, I would say, of God's vision for our sexuality is this, that God created our sexuality to be a sign pointing to him. This means that your longing for intimacy, your longing for exclusivity, for passionate love, for a perfect love that never ends, ultimately it's a desire for God. It's a desire that God has given you for him. And yes, 
there is marriage and there's romance in this life, but every marriage and every relationship will fall short because the love that you are truly longing for is this. And every marriage, perfect or imperfect, is meant to point you to that. It's a sign pointing to him, to the relationship we were meant to enjoy with him. Second point I'd say about God's vision for our sexuality is this, that we are all sexually broken. Some of you know there was a movie that came out recently called The Sound of Freedom. It was a movie that opened many people's eyes to the horrors of sex trafficking around the world, that there are young people who are kidnapped, who are sold into slavery to be used for the gratification of adults. And how much more prevalent it is than we'd ever want or dare to think. And many of you know from personal experience that lives are forever altered by unwanted sexual abuse, rape at the hands of others. That there's a lot of sexual brokenness. But the reality is, the reality is that all of us are sexually broken. There isn't some who are broken and some who are fine. We are all fallen. We are all sinners. We're all broken by the fall. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned and we've been sinned against. And although we've all been created in God's image and are designed to reflect his image, every part of us has been twisted. Every part of us has been broken by the fall, including our sexuality. And what that means is that your desires are not pure. Your heart is not perfect. Your will is not by nature aligned with God's will. I was born this way does not mean that your natural desires are therefore from God or good. Because of our fallenness, we will desire things that are bad for us, that are bad for others. We're not going to desire what God wants. We're going to desire what we want. We're going to want to be our own Lord. Again, this is just the reality of the fall, that we are broken in every way. A couple passages bring this to, to light. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's a very contrary message to what the world teaches, which is just follow your heart, right? Your feelings are your truth. And here he says, no, your heart is deceitful above all things. The things that you desire and want are not necessarily good for you. Romans 7.18, Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He says, I have a desire by the Holy Spirit to do what is good, but I also have a sinful nature that pulls me away from God. So God created our sexuality to be a sign pointing to him. But, unfortunately, we are all sexually broken. Our desires are not always right and good and good for us or good for others. The third part, the third aspect of his vision for our sexuality is this, that we are saved by grace, not by our sexual purity. You know, when Jesus sent out his disciples into the world in Matthew 28, he did not say, go into the world and make virgins of all people. He did not say, go into all the world and make heterosexuals of all people. He said, go into all the world and make disciples of all people teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
that we're not saved by our sexual purity. Heterosexuality doesn't send anyone to heaven. Virginity doesn't send anyone to heaven. That we are saved because Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live. That he died on the cross in our place to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That all who put their faith and trust in him will have eternal life. We're saved by our grace, not by our sexual purity. Ephesians 2 is the go-to passage to remind us of this, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not by works. You're not saved by what you've done or haven't done in your life. And this is great news for many of us, right? This is great news for all of us. This is great news for all who look at their lives and say, well, I've, I've screwed up, you know? There's no recovering. There's no getting back. Might as well just give up, stop going to church, stop following God. This is by grace you've been saved. An undeserved gift of God's favor. It's not by works, not by what you've done or haven't done. That is not what saves you. You're not saved by your sexual purity. That Jesus didn't come for the righteous, he came for sinners, as he said in Matthew 9, 10 to 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came, and he ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We're saved by grace, not by our sexual purity. And that means that your job... As a follower of Jesus, if you are, is not to sit in judgment on the world, but to go and love people, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That they might know him. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. We're not saved by our sexuality. We're not here to sit in judgment on anyone for what they believe and what they do. We're here to love. It's God's business to be the judge. We're saved by our, our Savior who died for us. So God's vision for our sexuality. First and foremost, that our sexuality is meant to be a sign pointing us to him and the relationship we were designed to have with him. We're all sexually broken, but thank God we're saved by grace, not by our sexual purity. And then fourth, God's vision for our sexuality is this. This is, if Jesus is your Lord, then the call is to be holy. I mentioned a book by Christopher Yuan called Holy Sexuality, and his contention is that God's design, if you were to boil it down, is chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage between a man and a woman. That boils it down. When you're single, it's to be celibate, to be chaste, to be holy and, and faithful to God, and then in marriage, to be faithful in marriage between a man and a woman. And people throughout the Bible and throughout history have rebelled against this in many ways, but the design and the vision remains. If Jesus is your Lord, then you're called to be holy, to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be like Jesus, to love as he loves, to serve as he serves, to avoid all kinds of sexual immorality, he says. It's the word porneia in Greek where we get all kinds of words from, which includes every kind, it says, of sexual intercourse outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. 
You know, and I said at the outset that the focus of many churches tends to be on rules. What can you do or not do? Which is just a, a not, not a helpful way to approach this topic. But the other extreme of legalism is what's known as antinomianism. Anyone ever heard that word before? Antinomianism. The legalist sets up all kinds of laws and rules and says, you know, you need to follow this, 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 and this. The antinomian says, it's antinomian, which is law, says, I'm saved by grace, therefore I can do whatever I please. Right? And those are the two opposite extremes that we're not to fall into. The one extreme that thinks we're saved by our good works and by following laws. And the other extreme that says, I've been saved, therefore I can do whatever I want, live however I want. The answer is no, that Jesus' salvation is not a license to do whatever you want, that faith without works is dead, that if you call him Lord, if you have loved him as he loves you, then your desire will be, as Paul said, to please him, to live for him, to submit every area of your life, including your sexuality, to him. To not say Jesus is Lord, but then keep that one area for yourself. So in a nutshell, I would say this is God's vision for our sexuality that he created our sexuality to be a sign pointing to him. That the relationship we're meant to enjoy here in a covenantal love filled with that intimacy and exclusivity and complementarity and passionate love is meant to point us to the relationship we are meant to have with him forever. That we're all sexually broken. There's not some have it together and some are worse. We're just all in need of a savior. But Jesus Save us by grace, not by our sexual purity. Praise God. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you're called to be holy, which at the very least includes chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. So what are the implications? Let me now get into the implications. Let's try to get specific now about the implications for your life and sexuality. Let me go back to the passage we read where he says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. So let me give you four implications. The first is this, that sex is a bodily commitment to another person that is meant to happen in the context of a whole life commitment to that person. Sex is a bodily commitment to another person that is meant to happen in the context of a whole life commitment to that person. So if our sexuality is meant to point us to God's love for us, then it would make sense that it's designed to be expressed in the context of a whole life commitment, which is the covenantal relationship we call marriage. This is not that God is a prude or trying to squash people's fun but it's his protection for us, especially for women who in those days and even today are most vulnerable when there's just everyone just is free to have sex however they please because, of course, women bear children and women are, tend to be the weaker vessel, as it says, and more prone to be abused and raped. The implication here is that we're not to give our bodies to another person unless we've also given the rest of ourselves to that person relationally, emotionally, financially, and so on. That the whole notion of casual sex, hookup culture, and apps, it's wrong because they violate God's design for our sexuality, for our spiritual or emotional health. To give yourself to someone physically 
when you don't have a whole life commitment from them. Or to take advantage of someone physically when you haven't given yourself to them whole life. It's to take advantage of others. It's to open yourself up to others to take advantage of you. It's to use others. Sex is meant to be in the context of a whole life commitment. And it's not just for procreation then. It's meant to be an act that reaffirms your covenant with that person, your exclusive covenant with that person. And Tim Keller put it this way in, in one of his sermons on the topic. He said, when you use sex inside a covenant, it becomes a vehicle for engaging the whole person in an act of self-giving and self-commitment. When I, in marriage, make myself physically naked and vulnerable, it's a sign of what I've done with my whole life. Sex is supposed to be a sign of what you have done with your whole life. And that's the reason why sex outside of marriage, according to the Bible, lacks integrity. You're asking someone to do with your body what you're not doing with your life. You're saying, let's be physically vulnerable to each other. Let's do physical display disclosure, but not whole life vulnerability. If you have sex inside a covenant, then the sex becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. It becomes a commitment apparatus. You're getting married all over again. You're giving yourself all over again. In marriage, when you're having sex, you're really saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you, and I'm acting it out. I'm giving you my body as a token of how I've given you my life. I'm opening to you physically as a token of the fact that I've opened to you in every other way. So again, God's design is this, that sex is a bodily commitment to another person that is meant to happen in the context of a whole life commitment to that person. Do not take someone's body if you're not willing to commit your whole life to them. Do not give your body to another if you have not given them your whole life. The second implication is this, that we're not to follow our desires, but to exercise self-control over them, submitting them to God's will. We're not to be led by our passions, led by our lusts, led by our desires, but to exercise self-control over them, submitting them to God's will. Again, going back to that passage from 1 Thessalonians, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. Again, remember what I said, the second aspect of our sexuality is that we're sexually broken. That means that our desires are not always right or good for us or good for others. Just because something feels right to you does not mean it's right. Just because you were born this way does not mean that it justifies behavior. That we are all fallen, we're all sexually broken. And we must be born again by the Spirit of God become new creations whose desires become more and more in line with the way God created us and intended for us to live. Paul puts it this way as he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, he quotes some of their sayings. He said, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's quoting here a saying that basically says sex is just like hunger, right? You're hungry, you eat. And you want to have sex, you go and fulfill that desire. That's the way they believed in that culture. He says it's not the way it is meant to be. The body is meant for the Lord. And 
And so Paul speaks out against this cultural norm. In those days, the shame was suppressing your desire. He says, no. Exercising self-control over your desires is what it means to be godly. And he continues to say this in verse 13. He says, the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. This is Every time you give yourself to another person, there's a bond that is created there, an enduring bond, powerful bonds that form in your head and your soul, not just in your body. You're not to follow every sexual desire, he says, but to exercise self-control over them. Remember, he says, Jesus says in John 8, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The more you exercise your freedom to drink alcohol, the more you become a slave to alcohol. The more you exercise your, and indulge your desires for sex, the more you become a slave to that. The more you indulge your desire by whether it is pornography or prostitution or extramarital affairs or anything, the more you are feeding that desire and becoming a slave to it. And if you struggle with any of that, find someone that you can confess to openly and talk to. As it says in James 5.16, James writes, Therefore, Confess your sins to one another. Just help me out. This is not working very well. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The world tells you that you are to follow your desires and follow your feelings, that those are good, that you need to be authentic to whatever those feelings are on the inside. But God's vision for sexuality is different. It tells us that there's a design for sexuality. It's meant to be expressed in the context of whole life commitment to point people to him and the love he has for us. That we are sexually broken and every desire we have is not necessarily good. That we're to exercise self-control over that. Submitting ourselves to God's will. The third aspect is this. The third implication of God's vision for our sexuality is this. We're to honor and serve others, including our spouse. Honor and serve others. Again, going back to that passage, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. So the reason to control yourself, he says, is because when you don't control yourself, you are taking advantage of other people. You're using other people. You're not loving other people. Pornography, prostitution, hookup apps, and so many other cultural expressions of sexuality. When you boil it down, it's about using people. Using other image bearers of God for your own pleasure. It's not love. It's passionate lust that takes advantage of other people for your own needs. It violates God's design for sexuality. It violates other people. It harms other people and it harms yourself. It needs to be repented of. Paul says we are to serve others in a way that is holy and honorable. Control ourselves so that we do not take advantage of others and use others and harm others with our sexuality. And if you're married, that includes your spouse. 
that marriage is not legalized lust. That in marriage you are to serve your spouse. Go back to Ephesians 5 and how he called husbands to lay down their wives for their spouses, for their wives, and wives to submit to their husbands, that there's meant to be this laying down of your own needs for the sake of honoring the other. To not take advantage of the other and not to deprive them either, but to love them, to serve them, to be willing to honor them above yourself in a way that glorifies God. We're to honor and serve others, including our spouse. If you look at your sexuality and the way that you express it, are you serving, are you honoring, or are you using others in a way that violates God's design, in a way that brings harm to yourself or others? Last implication is this, that we're to find our ultimate love in God. Beginning again at 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Live to please God, he said. Live to honor God. First and foremost, live with him as your ultimate love. No other person can take his place. Marriage and sexuality was meant to be a sign, an impermanent sign, pointing us to the love that we're meant to enjoy with God now and forever. The world elevates marriage, but God does not elevate marriage as the preeminent love. But it's our love relationship with God that is preeminent. This is why the Bible elevates singleness. Because marriage is not the ultimate love. Our love relationship with God is. Paul calls singleness a gift. Paul was single. Jesus was single. Singleness is not being deficient. Singleness is a gift, just as marriage is a gift, to be enjoyed by enjoying your love relationship with God. And it's hard to appreciate how radical it was in those days for Paul to say that, to say that singleness was a gift. Because in those days, a woman's job was to get married and have children. And if you didn't have those, then you had no future, no significance, no security. In fact, the Caesar Augustus at the time, he fined widows if they didn't get married within two years to ensure that they wouldn't be a burden to the Roman government. And as far as we can tell, Paul was the first one to say it is good to be single. That Christian widows do not need to be remarried. That the church will take care of them. That single men and women can serve God wholeheartedly without worrying about a spouse. They can find their significance in Christ, not in some earthly relationship. And things aren't that different today. That our churches and our cultures often elevate marriage and sex and family as idols to the point where single people feel like there's something wrong with them. And that those who are not having sex are viewed as weird by this culture. But the ultimate love is not marriage. It is our relationship with God. And marriage and sex is an imperfect, impermanent thing, sign pointing us to God. You know, go back to the decision on gay marriage, Obergefell versus Hodges, the decision that legalized gay marriage, Justice Kennedy wrote this. He said, No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. And that was one of the reasons given for legalizing gay marriage. But as a Christian, I look at that and I say, that's, that's a wrong statement. Because there is a union that is more profound than marriage. And that is the union that we have with Christ. That is the relationship we have with God, the covenant we have with him that that embodies the highest ideal of love, fidelity, devotion, 
sacrifice and family. And the, even the best marriage is just a shadow of that reality. So saying yes to Jesus as an unmarried person doesn't mean that someone is therefore lacking anything. Dennis Hollinger put it this way. He said, Life without sexual intimacy and marriage is not a deficient life. Rather, life without intimacy with God in Christ is deficient. The longings that we have for a spouse or for sexual union or for intimacy, for passionate love, in the end, they're longings for God himself, for the one who created us. So live to please him. Live for him, to honor him. Live with him as your ultimate love. You've all heard the expression, happy wife, happy life, I'm sure. There's some truth to that, of course. But Paul says our aim is not to please our spouse. That's not our ultimate aim. Our aim is to please him. It's to please God. That is our ultimate aim. So make him your ultimate love. Live for his glory and honor. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or sister or take advantage of them. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a vision that God has given us for love, for marriage, for sexuality, and for singleness as well. That this was meant to point to the relationship that we are meant to enjoy with God forever. The good news is that even though we are all sexually broken in many ways, there's forgiveness, there's healing at the cross. He is the one that your heart was designed for. And so why don't we take a minute in silence as the worship team comes forward and just turn to him, whatever has been brought up in your heart, in your mind during this, just come to him. If you need healing from him, come to him for healing. If you need to repent of anything, Come to him in repentance. If you need his help and his strength to live out this vision, then come to him for strength, whatever it might be. Just spend a minute between you and the Lord dealing with whatever he's put on your heart, and the worship team's going to come forward and will respond in worship. <laughs>